Section 22 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book Two, Chapter Five, Part One. What followed was a path into the unknown and a path unexpectedly solitary. It surprised, at first it frightened her, that she was to get so little help from Lewis. Without a doubt, his presumed greater knowledge of life had been one of the powerful elements attracting her to him. With his advantages of age, experience, circumstances, he seemed to her to move surely in that fabulous world of mammon for which she had so hungered as a child and had not yet attained. For her, he personified not only that for which the little green door in the wall of La Porcioncola had stood as the symbol, but also the finely decked luncheon-table of Aunt Georgina. And between these two extremes of illicit adventure and conventional elegance, utterly dependent as they are one upon the other, lay the whole wondrous realm which is society, which is aestheticism, which is history, which is the multicolored, solid-seeming fruit of human civilization. For a complexity of reasons, provincial and individual, the girl had always felt herself deprived of this traditional world. Now in Lewis she was to possess it. Yet they had not been lovers a week before she knew this same Lewis powerless to direct their love's course. It was like being at sea with a companion whose sole idea of seamanship was to let adrift. She could not easily grasp what was the truth that to Lewis also, because of her being as she was, their situation was essentially without precedent. Still less did she understand, albeit she was compelled to act upon it, the curious fact that Lewis was clutching like a drowning man at her spiritual certitude. It was essentially the same movement as that made thirty years earlier by Sholto her father towards Julie her mother. But if Lewis in himself was Joanna's fascinating symbol for the greatly coveted world of mammon down the ages, there was that in the contingencies of their coming together which answered with equal strength to the opposite need of her nature. He was not merely the fruit, he was forbidden. Therefore, in partaking, she gratified her lust for rebellion and for sacrifice, for rejection of and by the world. This it was which had stirred in her long ago when she kissed the blind woman. But now the two opposing passions, the high barbarian pride of life and the deep Christian pride of humiliation, were mounting together to fulfillment. All the long contact with her lover was colored by them. It was the first that held sway over her imagination. It was the second that vitally governed her actions. The second, too, insinuated itself like some exquisite drug into every sensual abandonment. Not for nothing is it that the most desperate of sinners are the quickest to comprehend Christ's message. And thus, from the beginning, she was careless of discovery. She wished, if possible, to spare her mother, and to this end, as also for convenience, could lie in scheme without scruple. But really, she was indifferent to outside opinion and it was probably this indifference that was answerable for the unfailing success of her schemes and her lies. Confidences apart, if one is at no pains to keep the truth from people, they will scarcely ever suspect it. True, there was something in Carl Nilsson's looks that betrayed him as a possible exception. But of this Joanna was glad. 
she often longed to speak of him of her life and her strange solitude, but his own discretion kept her mouth shut. Feemy she would have told, had Feemy been in Glasgow, but the information could not be committed to writing, and there was no one else in whom she wanted to confide. In the absence of human counsellors she instinctively tried prayer. For a time it would often happen that while the mother was kneeling by her bedside, the daughter knelt also by hers, only a thin wall of lath and plaster dividing them as they sought along the same road for guidance and strength. And without doubt strength was given her, of a kind. Invariably she rose from her prayers happier, more serene, with reinforced endurance. But it was a sacrificial, deathly endurance, full of the exaltation of humility, exuding tenderness, pity, and forgiveness towards Lewis. And though it lifted and puffed up her spirit, somehow Joanna knew it was not good. She knew that such praying was a subtle indulgence and intoxication that she were better to abstain from. Some day she might learn another way of prayer. Meanwhile she thought she had gained a greater understanding of her mother's daily failure. Probing for help in other directions, the girl now applied herself for the first time in her life with real eagerness to the world of books. Not till now had she apprehended the vital relation between that world and the world of actuality, and as it came home to her like a startling discovery she took to searching out in novels and biographies the cases that had anything in common with hers. Unluckily, the men and women in print were either so much nobler than Lewis and she, or so much more depraved, or their circumstances were so entirely different, that their experience gave little help. She awoke in the process, however, to what had scarcely existed for her before—human character as distinguished from elementary emotions. It was one of Pender's fads that he could compose with greater freedom as well as more concentration if someone read aloud while he worked, and Joanna, delighted by every new use he found for her, grew apt in the choice of books for that purpose. He liked her voice, was soothed by it, and often for long stretches she would hardly know how far any of the sense was reaching him through his primary absorption but she was always reassured in time by some skeptical or approving interjection. Best of all she was pleased when she could lead him on to the eager discussion of some point of conduct. They quarrelled most deeply over tragedy. "'People are like that,' was his shrugging comment on the catastrophe in Anna Karenina. And he only smiled and went on painting when Joanna, with a whitening face, insisted that Anna could have saved the situation. That was in the Carmunnock studio, now their securest meeting-place. It was for their hours together there that Joanna particularly lived. Lewis had taken it on a yearly tenancy. For though he went often to London and abroad, staying away for months on end, Glasgow had for the time become his working headquarters. The first panel and lunette in the city chambers were finished some while ago, it was true, and it seemed doubtful whether he would be asked to do others there. But to his amused pleasure, a brewer with a castle on Loch Lomond had commissioned him, having seen the panel, to decorate the ancestral billiard-room. Between whiles he painted some portraits of Glasgow people, including Mrs. Tullis, of whom Joanna was secretly jealous, quite without cause, and in these portraits he experimented for the first time in realism. Whenever he wanted her, Joanna sat to him. She lived for their hours together, 
but she lived, at any rate during that first year, in trepidation. "'My dear one, how nice you look today!' If that were his greeting, all was well. Lewis would then be a god to her and a revelation. She loved the way he would speak of the wonders of the body. "'Every inch of you full of pores and ducks and odds and ends of things to make you live,' as he put it. And he made her see what a marvel of balance it was that one could stand upright. "'I think myself, you know,' he had told her one day, looking at her very boyishly, "'that a man has no right to go near a woman unless he feels, for the moment at least, that she's a goddess. I certainly feel so for you. On my word, Joanna, every time we meet it is a fresh adventure, and you show me a new charm." But it was not always like this with them. Joanna had learned to search his face swiftly as they met, and she kept the ears of a newt for his first utterance. She soon came to know and dread the comprehensive, slightly incredulous glance with which he could sum her up afresh. An unfortunate hat at such times could make him, it almost seemed, revise his whole opinion of her. And Joanna was not always happy in her hats. Once, in desperation at the prospect of a spoiled afternoon, which she had read in his cool eyes, she had tossed the offending thing of straw and flowers high into a tree in the park where they had just met. But instead of sticking there, it had tumbled from branch to branch and down into the dust at their feet. And to her inexpressible mortification, Lewis, taking no pains to hide his annoyance, had made her put it on again and later on that same day he had ground her mercilessly between the millstones of his self-distrust and his rancor against life. "'Though I loathe things as they are,' he confessed, "'I don't really know what I want, what kind of life.' Already that afternoon he had spat contempt at his work and harped on his middle-agedness with a peculiar disgust that sent despair like a shudder through Joanna's very flesh. Now, as his deepest bitterness welled up in him, he struck out at her and at himself with equal savagery. "'I suppose I'm a coward,' he girded. "'Well, what's to be done about it? If it's a hero you want, better have nothing more to do with me. It isn't too late. I've really done you no harm, have I? My advice to you is, leave the old ship in time. Take a lesson from the rats, my dear. The worst of it is, you are not of the rat tribe.' You'd stick to me, I do believe. Why are you so good? I don't think I want you to be so good. It only makes things worse for me." By experience, Joanna knew that whatever she might say would be wrong in reply to this outburst, so she kept silent. It was in these tormented hours that she loved Lewis most poignantly. But she was like a mother quite alone with a sick, deliriously fractious child when there is no doctor within miles. She would have done or given anything to restore him, would have foregone her sex if that had been possible, and sometimes she had the strange feeling that he desired this of her. But she could not tell his malady, and so was helpless. When they had parted thus, she would wander in a limbo of blind and suffering endurance till their next meeting. Where was it, she questioned herself, that she failed him? And again, how could she do aught but fail him, so long as he would not take her wholly, wholly give himself? Engirdled by the flames of La France Quadrant, 
they rushed together to assuage their immediate mutual need, and she had fancied herself at last possessed. But with the dawn of the next day she had known that Louis, no more than Bob, no more than Mario, had made her his. Nor had he committed himself to her. This, though their love had emerged only the sweeter and the freer from that first embrace. Dimly she realized that such a union as she desired beyond all desires was what her mother had in vain craved from her father through all the years of a marriage physically fruitful. Was it something that only women desire? Did men fear and avoid the consummation of spirit it was bound to bring? Or was it, whispered the skeptic in her, a lovely delusion? There were, one must believe, certain false dreams, will-o'-the-wisps, which could lead the spirit disastrously astray. Was this such a dream? But no, the absolute denial at least must be set aside. For there was Feemy's achievement with the unlikely Jimmy. Joanna could not tell how the knowledge had come to her that Feemy and Jimmy possessed the valid promise of what she herself desired. But there it was. She was sure of it. Could it be simply that it was a possession not given to such as herself, or to such as her mother? All these wistful questionings, however, were apt to be dissipated by the next meeting, when Lewis would be gay, loving, apparently at peace with the world. It seemed to Joanna, then, that if she were to suffer forever it would be light payment for the treasure he poured out to her. Then his superior age, his sex, his mind, were things for her to worship, not to wrestle with. She loved it that his judgments made her own seem petty and at fault, that he was kinder to human nature, more tolerant than she. Also his richness of talent filled her with admiration. He had the tricks of music and of mimicry, could play by ear upon the piano with a sure delicate touch, could make his beloved rock with laughter by his beautifully sensitive imitation of a penguin in a hurry or he would improvise a supra-solemn dialogue on art between Mrs. Lovett and Val Plummer. His power of observation alone was a miracle to Joanna. During their very first meeting he had shocked her by his oblivions. Now she became fully awake to her own dream-wrapped egoism. To please him, and in emulation too, she had begun to notice, to discover as if with new eyes the little significant things of daily life. Also a sense of humour, long dormant, was pricking up in her like green blades in spring. Was not this in itself a kind of consummation? It was certainly growth, and it brought with it so strong a sense of well-being that Joanna, sunning her unfolding petals, easily doubted the conclusions of sadder hours. Indeed the joy of a purely intellectual flowering is savoured all the more keenly because of the dark, unregarded fruits of death which are quietly ripening alongside. 2. Joanna and Linnet had formed one of those fluctuating friendships which may blossom at any time between two of the same family, especially when conditions in that family are becoming more and more impossible, and complete disintegration is at hand. The feeling between them had budded on that morning of Georgie's arrival, in the moment of dismay when Joanna had seen Linnet come out rumpled and lacklustre from his bedroom. Then during the hours of waiting on the quay, when they had shared the burdens of their mother, 
the two had sent out signals to each other, signals of claim and distress, as might two sailors marooned upon neighboring islands. For a while, however, nothing had come of it. Joanna was far too much absorbed in her love, and her energies were too completely engaged in withstanding her lover's strange, recurrent exhaustions, to have anything to spare for her brother. Yet it was through Louis that in due time the fleeting friendship was brought to flower. They had been lovers a year, and Joanna was suffering from one of Louis's long absences, when she began with all the vigor of her awakened faculties to handle a situation which till now had found her quite at its mercy. Of late, something different from endurance, either of the stoical or the Christian variety, had stiffened itself in her. She knew that if she could not bring about a change between Louis and herself, misery must ensue for both. And all that was most robust in her nature rose in a sudden demand for happiness, for happiness and fair play. At the moment she was certainly miserable. It was the seventh time that Louis, by his going, had left her to an empty existence in Glasgow. That was what it had come to. Existence without him was a mere shell, a semblance, a waiting. Yet it appeared from his letters that all the while he was contriving to lead a full enough, real enough life away from her. He spoke torturingly of his boys and their doings, of pleasant hours passed with friends, of successful parties in the newly decorated studio at Camden Hill. True, he wrote that things were not only endurable because of her being there in the background, that they would be intolerable were it not for the thought of their next meeting. And Joanna was happy in knowing that he meant what he said. But it was not enough. Besides, if she in return were to write of her hideous loneliness, he would be sure to reply in the distressed and powerless tone which he most dreaded. His only suggestion, made for the hundredth time, would be that she should come to London to live, as there, he thought, things would be easier for them both. As if she herself were not working towards London incessantly. But it would take time, as he knew. He knew she had promised her mother to stay at home for at least another year until some satisfactory household arrangement could be come by. Meanwhile, she needed other comfort than that they should take things as they came, remain cheerful in absence, make the best of their hours together. It wasn't fair. Joanna had accepted it, borne with it, even hugged it for twelve months and more. But it wasn't fair. With a single irrevocable movement her characteristic sense of balance righted her. And upon that conviction followed a definite withdrawal of her tenderest self from Lewis. If he would not have love, then let it be war. It was curious how her instinctive procedure tallied outwardly with his unwelcome advice. She set about the separate, defiant enrichment of her own life. And this was where Linnet, among other things, came in. For in that separate, defiant enrichment of hers to which Lewis had driven her, Joanna grasped at any emotional activity that offered. She had known that Linnet had a lot of friends whom he never brought home, though it was with them he spent his spare time and all his holidays. She had known this, but it had not concerned her. Now, as she hardened self-defensively towards Lewis, her shoot of tenderness for Linnet was enlarged. For the first time she really listened, encouraging his confidence, and in so doing became in some measure involved. 
it was clear that her brother and she and Louis all suffered from the same manie de la grandeur. The form only was different with Linnet. All his friends were newly rich. The girls were solidly material in their worldliness and inclined to be fast. The young men drank champagne with their luncheon at the North British, made a point of being seen about with the musical comedy star of the moment from London, and had always some gamble or other on hand at the stock exchange. They lived in suburban villas and had other villas at the coast. They kept motors and racing yachts. To Joanna their lives appeared ugly and on the whole vapid. But to her new powers of observation nothing human came amiss. In some curious way, too, the mere fact of their wealth served her with Lewis. Never meeting them, he learned of their doings only through Joanna's talk and letters, and he was childishly impressed and perturbed by the growing incident in her life apart from himself. But what interested her to the point of anxiety was the transformed linnet she now saw. It was evident that the Howdens, the Rintols, the Bells and the rest, there were not above six families in this particular set, could not quite accept the young bannerman, Linty as they called him, as one of themselves. True, he dressed like them, like them he wore his hat well back on his head, and shared in all their pursuits. But he was never able to invite them to his house, and always in his background there was the consciousness of a mother eccentric in ways prohibitive to the Bells, the Rintols, and the Howdens. So it had come that Linnet, himself excruciatingly subject to his disabilities, had taken the only way open to his nature. He had traded on the family eccentricity, and in the circle he desired to enter had constituted himself as clown. He had only to meet one of his gay friends, Joanna noticed, to be electrified into an almost frightening animation. Her heart ached for him as she watched him wave his arms about and listen to his outrageous speeches. But what touched her to something deeper than pity was the unconscious isolation and contempt that lay beneath his fooling. He had succeeded in his aim. His friends rewarded his queer physical abandonment with laughter and a special kind of affection that apparently gratified him. He was both popular and privileged. But his sister discerned in him something of the wistful, increative solitude which she had obscurely felt in her popular father. A queer fish, his friends called him, and it was so he liked to think of himself. But as yet he had no being save in the shoal, and thus not belonging there had less being than they. On his tentative introduction of Joanna, Linnet took a slightly altered place in his friend's estimation and consequently in his own. She was uncommon-looking, said the girls, and one of the Howden boys went so far as to fall in love with her for a whole fortnight. She tried to believe herself amused by this new phase of life, threw herself into it, and had the momentary satisfaction of rousing Pender's possessive instincts. But it could not last long. Before many weeks had passed she knew that Linnet was the only one among her new acquaintances to claim her sympathy, and the mushroom growth of her intimacy with the Howdens, the Bells and the Rintols died rapidly away. After all, there were other things, and far less tiresome, that would answer the same end. There was her work. She had discovered that Lewis took an odd pride in her capacity to earn any money whatsoever. Accordingly, she set herself to earn more, 
and soon, with her fashion plates and an evening class for teachers which she took twice a week at the School of Art, she was making from five pounds to ten pounds a month. This had the added advantage of bringing London nearer. Not that she had started saving as yet for that end. To Julie's grief all her daughter's money went with an increasing extravagance of ideas on self-adornment. Nothing at this time was too good for Joanna, and she became noticeably elegant in her dress. Poor Julie had long and desperate confabulations with Eva Gedge over the child's growing worldly-mindedness. End of section 22